Multiply is our church-wide study in Colossians. And you may have gotten a little book. Um, the booklets have been handed out. If not, uh, Brent will figure out how to get you one. But the booklets contain some really helpful information. They chart not only what Pastor David and the, the, Pat, the, the preaching staff are doing, but also chart through the, the series to some degree that are being taught in the life groups. Uh, because of uh, the graciousness of, and vision of Pastor David and Pastor Brent and others, We've got some liberty in this class to dig in a little bit deeper and to go beyond the, the, the simple material, not simple in the sense of not beep, 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 back it up, to go beyond the materials that are simply in the handout and to, to allow you to self-study some of those. We'll incorporate some of what's there, but our goal is to try and do it a little deeper. Now, if you want to maximize your chance here, let me suggest to you a couple of things to be bringing in our class. First of all, bring a Bible. That may mean a, a book. That may also mean your iPhone or Google phone or whatever kind of uh, phone that you use, or maybe it's a, an, a tablet of some sort. Um, but in addition to bringing those things, it's useful to bring a pen. If you're going to use an iPhone or a cell phone or a tablet, you need to bring a finger or something else that will help you maneuver on there. And then just for grins, I'm going to suggest you bring what I call a handy-dandy notebook. I use a handy-dandy notebook. You can get these anywhere. Amazon, you name it, Office Depot, Office Supply. I use a kind called Moleskin because they don't cost a lot, but the paper's real good. It's got an envelope to keep loose things at the end. I, I keep all sorts of notes in these. I keep my trial notes, everything else. I just keep one of these nearby, and I take it with me everywhere I go. In fact, I'm so concerned about it that you'll see on the inside... In case of loss, please return to Mark Lanier. Put my email address and said as a reward you'd get something cool. Now, see, now here's the deal. Don't put like five dollars because someone's going to say, hey, the book's worth ten. Why am I going to get five bucks for it? Don't put like a hundred dollars. Someone may steal it just to be able to give it back to you for a hundred bucks. You put something like something cool. And then everybody's like, hey. I might like something cool. Now, one of the easiest ways to do this might be to simply use the notebook that is being handed out right now if you don't have one, but these are the ones on Multiply. However you do it, do it and make some notes. All right? Uh-oh, we don't have enough. We've got other hands up. Uh, we've got a hand up over here. We've got hands, 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 hands hands. Okay, we're going to move on. So this is what I'd like you to do this morning. I want to take a step back and I want to ask this question. How do we study an epistle? Epistle is an English version of a Greek word that means a, a, a kind of letter or writing that was sent. 
it's got the same root in the Greek as apostolos or apostle. That's that's that pistol part. And so the, the question is, how do we study not the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not the history that's in Acts, not Revelation, apocalyptic literature, all of those would have a different approach. But there is a group of writings in the New Testament that are letters that were written, most of them by Paul. We call them epistles. And how do we go about studying and reading an epistle? Well, there are a number of steps, but I've gleaned out four that are very important that I want us to talk about and do and use today as we look at the passage that we look at today. Step number one, you try to read the entire epistle in one setting. That's not hard to do with Colossians. It's just four chapters. It's tougher to do if you're doing Romans, which has 16, or 1 Corinthians, which has 16. Those are longer. But anytime you can read it in one setting, that's useful. Now, we're not going to read Colossians here. That's homework. You can do that at home. But when you read the epistle, read it all the way through first. Don't just start digging into the first verse and trying to, to digest it. Read the entire letter. When Paul wrote Colossians, he did not write it for them to read one verse each Sunday. He wrote it to be read to the church. as one letter. And then they can dissect it. And then they can break apart into discussion groups. What do you think he meant by this? Then they can start to do those things. But for us, step one, Read it all in one setting. Step two, while you're reading it, have your handy-dandy notebook and make notes of ideas, issues, questions, things that occur to you while you're reading it. And you jot those notes down. And at that point you go back and you can start the third section, the, the third step that I'm offering this morning, and that is you study it in sections. There will be logical divisions. Most translations have the editors who did the translating have already broken it down into segments, and sometimes they'll have little titles added. Sometimes they'll have paragraphs. Not all Bibles are written that way, but you can sit there and you can start to make sense of what the various sections are. So that's a third step. And then as you're starting to study those sections, you do each one at a time, and only then do you reach that fourth step, you figure out how it applies to your life. You can't just pull a verse out and say, I believe the Bible, I'm going to find this verse and apply it to my life. I need to know what to do today. I need guidance from the Lord. I'm going to find the verse for today. Judas went and he hung himself. I'm going to... Do it again. I surely didn't get it right the first time. 
What thou doest, doest quickly. You get in trouble if you do that kind of stuff. So you don't want to apply it until you've studied it and you've digested it. Now, there are some more steps along the way. If this were a, um, a seminary class, I'd give you a little bit more direction on what to do. But these are four good basic steps that kind of incorporate the larger image. So, for example, one of the other things you need to do is, because it's a letter, you need to try and understand who the recipients were. And so you, you, you do a background study on Colossae, for example. And we did that last week together. You can get that off the Internet. So there are a few more little wrinkles that you can do to heighten your study. But this is a good basic one, two, three, four. Okay? You with me? You got it? One. Read the whole thing. Two, make notes of ideas and issues. Three, study it in sections. And four, apply it to your life. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to do one, two, three, four, but instead of reading the whole thing, we're just going to read the sections that we're going to cover. Okay? So we're going to read chapter 1, verse 15 through the end of the chapter. But when after we do it, as we do it, we're going to make notes of ideas and issues, then we're going to go back and talk about how to study it. And we're going to study it together, and then we'll apply it to our life. So we're going to look at the Colossian letter, specifically Colossians 1, 15 through 29. You got it? Okay. So here's what we do. We, we find it in the Bible. It's in the New Testament. It's towards uh, the, the back of the New Testament. It's one of the later epistles that are listed. It's got the letter of Paul to the Colossians. There we are. Okay. Chapter 1. We're going to down... Oh, look. These nice translators of the English Standard Version have given us a title for this. Now, remember that Paul did not write chapter 1, verse 1. The chapters and verses are added by scholars well over, um, oh heavens, over a thousand years later in the sense that we've got them now. And so we can't just go by that, but they're helpful. The same way, this is not Paul's subtitle, The Preeminence of Christ. That's added by the translators. So now we're going to look at this together and here's what we're going to do. I've got, I've got the text for us to all read together. I have paper. I have a pen. We're going to make notes as we go along of problem areas or questions or ideas or things we notice. We'll do it together. If I miss something that you see, I'd say shout it out, but that could get unwieldy. So take it home with you and do homework. He... It's talking about Jesus here, if we're in the context. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Firstborn of creation? I didn't think Jesus was born. I thought he always had been, right? That's a problem. First born. 
Huh. Put that aside. Firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Okay. Got a couple of things I want to note here. First of all, you get that sing-songy pattern? Da, 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 this or that, this or that, this or that. I just noticed there's some kind of a pattern. It's kind of like an A or B, A or B. All things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. See what I mean? I just make note of it. See if it's interesting. Another thing that that occurs to me as I'm reading this, he's the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. This whole idea of visible, invisible, image, it's, he's using the same words over and over. So I want this image and, and visible and invisible. That just seems, that just seems invisible. Um, could be important. Okay. So all things, ooh, all, look at that. All things were created. And then it, all things were created. Look at that. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, thrones and the All things were created. He's like repeating the same language through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. I mean, they, they, there's, this, this is all. All, 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 all. All, 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 all. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. The firstborn. Ooh, just saw that again. Firstborn. Two times. He's the beginning. The firstborn. From the dead. That in everything. He might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's that same all we've been seeing over and over. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope 
of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So that's the first section that we can look at. There's a second section that ends up the chapter. But let's just start with the first one. Now, we made a list of some things here. And I want to put the list back up here. He's the firstborn. We've got that A-B pattern. We've got the image, visible, invisible. Now, I want to show you some of my notes in my handy-dandy notebook. These are notes that I made when I was working on this, totally apart from what I just did with you. I go through here, and I just make my notes. I read it. I made my notes. I started picking out these words, image, invisible, visible, invisible. I looked at the A-B structure, that it's like poetry. It's like a song or a hymn. I was troubled by this firstborn word. It's prototokos in the Greek. So I wrote it in the Greek. And then I, I, I started mapping this stuff out as I started doing my digging into these matters. My digging continues. It goes for pages because of how I went about digging. So let's talk about how you dig. How do you study? You've got these problems here or these questions what do you do? How do you, how do you, you know, one thing you can do is you can take it to lunch. You can say, Miss Carolyn, what do you think this means? You can say, you know, Jim, what do you think this means? Dale, what do you think this means? Carol, what do you think this means? Gwen, what do you think this means? I don't know. What do you think it means? And you go back and forth. That's not a bad thing to do. But it's going to be of only limited use. So if you want to dig, I want to make some suggestions to you. Dig, number one, look up similar passages in the Bible where the bells ring, where you think, boy, this reminds me of. So look at other passages in the Bible because sometimes they will help illuminate. A second thing that you can do when you're digging, it's not just look for other things in the Bible, but go for a readable book that's kind of a commentary. I call that a readable commentary. There are people who write commentaries that are not just here's each verse type thing. And one of the, the, the best ones, earliest ones at least for me on Colossians, I read this one in high school. So I've had this copy for 40 years. It's by a guy named William Barclay. It's entitled, The All-Sufficient Christ Studies in Paul's Letter to the Colossians. And when I was in high school and even afterwards, William Barclay was one of my favorite authors to read. I really thought he did a good job with Scripture and still do today. And so you can read through here. And you can see he does his chapters in a good sense. 
the man who wrote the letter, the people to whom the letter was written. He'll talk about Paul. He'll talk about Colossae. He'll talk about the shape and form of the letter. What was the problem at Colossae? What were the threats? The all-sufficient Christ, which is what he gets the, the name from. It's a very readable, good way to look through the book. And, and so that's one way. So a readable commentary. A third thing you can look at that's really helpful is a good commentary that's, that's not just a book readable, but I mean an, an actual good commentary. This is a verse-by-verse book. A, 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 a typical commentary, for lack of a better way of saying it. One of the best series, if you want a Valentine's Day gift like none other. You say to that special someone, you know, in addition to the chocolate, wouldn't hurt to get me a new volume in this commentary series. I'd like to have it. Maybe the one that's got Colossians. This One of the series that's really good is called The New... International, international commentary of the New Testament. Great series. It, it does a good job at taking it verse by verse and it takes some of the more academic stuff and drops it into the footnotes so you don't get bogged down in things that you don't need to get bogged down in. And it's very, very useful. Now, some of you will have the ability to dig further. And one of the first places I like to go is to the Greek text. And if you've got dexterity with Greek and you've got an ability to go to the Greek text, then heavens to Betsy, go there. Because it's going to help you a ton. And we'll go there together. But that's also why it's good to study and to, to check on other people and to see what other people have to say. So... That is a good basic way to dig into the scriptures. Now, we've got some problem passages here. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk to you about those in a way that allows us to note them a little bit more. So let's look first at this issue of, I think the easiest one to start out with, is image, visible, invisible. And it sort of jumps out at you here, but I promise you if you're reading it in the Greek, it would jump out even more because the Greek words are so closely tied in some of these ways. Jesus is the image. That's the Greek word icon. Um, icon. We get uh, uh, icon from it. <laughs> I-C-O-N, though, is the way we spell it. Icon. Uh, the, the W is just a long O in Greek. So it's icon. Okay? Um, an icon means an image or a representation. And so you, you've got this concept that Paul's writing about here where Jesus is the image or the representation of a God we can't see. People want to see God? Look at Jesus. In the Old Testament, it was taught over and over, God is a spiritual being. 
So even the passages where, for example, it says God visited Abraham, but the same passage will say it was an angel of the Lord or a messenger of the Lord because God himself is a spiritual being, God the Father. The uniqueness of the incarnation is that through God the Son, through Jesus, we see God the Father. That's what Jesus said. When the apostles said, show us the Father, he says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the visible form, uh, not, not form, the visible presentness of God. Something we could see physically. And so he is the icon. Now the thing is, let me see how we're doing time-wise. I had a special request from someone that's kind of wrapped up in here. Look, here's the bottom line. This stuff's so cool, okay? I don't have a... a we've got to be careful here time-wise. We could spend about two or three classes on this passage. I'm just being blunt honest with you. You see, here's the reason why. Icon is also a Greek word that was being used a whole bunch in Jewish culture. There was a contemporary of Jesus's and Paul's. He died about 50 AD. His name was Philo of Alexandria. And he was a Jew who lived in Alexandria, Egypt. And he wrote a ton of stuff that we still have today. I brought two of ten volumes from the Loeb Classical Library that are his writings. And for him... He would use this word icon to talk about how do we see the invisible God. Paul's not pulling this out of thin air. It's a discussion point. I was in Cleveland and New York this week. And do you know there were a lot of people talking about some stuff that came up over and over in some conversations. One of them was the TV show Vikings. Now I got to tell you, if you've ever seen the TV show Vikings on the History Channel, you either thought, wow, this is kind of cool. Or you thought, that would have been my half of the Mark and Becky relationship. Or you would have thought, I cannot believe anybody would watch something like that. It is so gruesome and bloody and horrible. That would be the Becky half of the Mark and Becky relationship. But that show came up multiple times this week and people are talking about it. People talk about politics. People talk about all sorts of things. Well, in the world of ideas back in the time of Paul, people talked about things. They talked about, they didn't talk about TV shows, they didn't have them. They didn't talk about top ten radio hits. They didn't have them. But they would talk about ideas and concepts. So what Philo's writing about is not just something goofy for Philo. It's an idea that's being talked about. And he writes about how do you see the invisible God? And for Philo, he would say, and those who followed him or those who thought like him, one way to see the invisible God is through creation and the things he has made. 
though they are not to be confused with God. He talked a lot about if you want to get something that's close to God, go to the Word of God. Because where God has spoken, there you're going to hear or see or have a sense of the invisible God. So on flight and finding, he writes the following. Philo says, whoops, sorry. Philo says, all right, there are six cities, you got to get it in context, which Moses calls places of refuge, five of which were represented by symbolic figures in the sanctuary. The laws laid up in the ark are symbols of injunction and prohibition. In other words, here's what you can and can't do. The lid of the ark of the covenant, you remember it from... Indiana Jones, right? (laughs) The lid of the ark, which he calls the mercy seat, that represents God's gracious power. The creative and kingly powers are represented by the winged cherubim that are on top of the ark. So here's all of these five things represented. The divine word, who is high above all these has not been visibly portrayed, being like to no one of the objects of sense. Word and wisdom are the same thing in in the thinking of Philo. So he's talking about divine wisdom, God's divine word, that thought process, for lack of a better way of saying it, behind what God has done isn't the kind of thing you can see. It's like not one of the objects of sense. Nay, he, the word, is himself the image, the icon of God. Chiefest, chiefest of all beings intellectually perceived. Placed nearest with no one inter, no intervening distance to the alone truly existent one. I know you're sitting there thinking, holy smoke, I need to go back and reread John 1 now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, because John all of a sudden puts jumper cables. What are the, the not jumper cables, what's the stuff you put on the heart and you say clear? Yeah, defibrillator paddles. He putting the paddles on in verse 14 when he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul doesn't agree with Philo's approach totally, but Paul is using some terms to help us understand the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The invisible God is seen through the visible Jesus. We can understand the creative force behind the universe. And this is where we get now into the sing-songy pattern stuff. I don't mean that derogatorily. It's beautiful. By him, all things were created. Now, Paul could have quit there, but he lapses into this beautiful poetry. Things that are in heaven, things that are on earth, things that are visible, but things that are invisible, ideas, reason, wisdom, 
whether thrones or dominions. Thrones are, are seated places of, of, of the ruler. Dominions is a, a Greek word that references people who have power, whether they're on the throne or not. Authorities is another way to translate that, but they don't use it there because they're going to use it for another word in a minute. Rulers. Those are people who are designated to rule. Or authorities. Those can be bosses and people who have ruling authority even if they're not formal rulers. All things were created through Jesus. All things were created for Jesus. And He is before everything. And in him, everything is held together. It's united. It exists as one. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, let's pause and look at that firstborn because now we're in a good shape to do it. Paul has set up a pattern, an A-B pattern, but the A-B pattern is one that goes kind of like this. And, 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 and then we get, this is part of understanding firstborn. A-B pattern. So he'll say, you know, he's above all things in heaven and on earth. Right? Visible. Invisible. Thrones. Powers, rulers, authorities. Through him, everything, by him, all of creation is summed up there. You got it? And the reason that's important is because then he goes another step. And he says not only all of creation, but... The second creation, which is the church, which is life after the cross. We've got a new creation. We are born again, is the scriptural language in the church. There is a, 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 a new life, a life we are born from above. Another way to translate John 3.16 and so you've got a second creation here. Jesus is above all of the first creation, but he's also above all of the second creation. And so he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the head of the church, the head of the body. And so you've got the church, the body, the firstborn from the dead. Which gets us to that firstborn issue. Firstborn is a Greek word, as I told you, it's prototokos in the Greek. That's in English, P-R, a long O, T-O-T-O-K-O-S. Prototokos. Give it a whirl. Prototokos. Karisto. Um... Prototokos is translated here firstborn. But it can have two distinct ideas or usages in its semantic range of meaning. 
One of them is first one out of the womb. I'm just going to say first out. First one out of the womb. Esau beat Jacob out of the womb. Esau's firstborn. Okay, so it can mean the first one to be physically born. But it can also mean preeminent. As in the most important. As in, uh, was it Charlie Chan who used to have number one son? You know, it's, it's, it's the idea of the most important, the preeminent, the one above all. First, not in time, but first in priority. You got it? So it's not out of everyone born. This is time. This is priority. And it's not referencing a, 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 an actual birthing process. Paul uses the word here to great effect because both sides of the word have a ring of truth to them. Paul's able, in a sense, to make a pun off of the two meanings of the word. So when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, what he's making sure you know is that Jesus is firstborn as priority, preeminence. He is over all of creation. It was done by him, through him, for him. He was before it. So, yeah, I mean, when, when Paul says that he was before it, by him all things were created, that can't mean that he is part of creation. He was already there. By him it was already created. He's before all things. So he can't be a part of creation in that sense. Jesus is eternal. He didn't come into existence at some point in time. He was incarnated as a human. But he already existed. So when Paul uses prototokos as firstborn in the first section of this, that A, the first creation, he's talking about Jesus having priority. He's all-sufficient. He's everything. It's the second creation where Paul uses it, the B part, in a time sense. Because Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. Jesus was the first of the resurrection. We will be resurrected as well. But Jesus was the first one resurrected unto eternal life of all humanity. That's why he's called the second Adam. So what Paul's talking about here is both this idea of firstborn. And when you start digging into the passage, it makes more sense. So now you start looking at it again. We won't go through the whole thing because we're running out of time. But he's the image of the invisible God. We see him, we see God. He's the preeminent one out of everything that exists on this earth. He's preeminent. He's the top. Because by him, everything was made in heaven on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, everything created through him, for him. He's before everything. 
in him, everything is being held together. He's, now we shift to the second creation, the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Everything first creation, everything second creation, everything before the cross, everything after the cross, everything that is to come for all eternity. Jesus is over all of it. Now, we're just starting to get a glimpse, but we're running out of time, so we're going to shift to the PowerPoint. Because Dale Hearn emailed me and said there weren't points for home last week. Here are your points for home, Dale. You want to see God? See Jesus. Tim Wilson sitting on the second row right over here. How many times would you say in the last 10 years you've read the Gospel of John? More than you can count, I venture to say. I'll bet you he's read it a hundred times because he wants to see Jesus. See Jesus. You see Jesus, you see God. Number two, Jesus is all sufficient. Just make a list in your handy-dandy notebook of the needs you have in life. Make a list of your needs. If you'd be embarrassed for someone to see it, make it in code. But write it down. If you've got some stumbling sin that you're trying to overcome, make a note that makes sense to you and God of what it is. But write down where you are and what needs you have in your life. And then here's my question. Write Jesus next to him and answer me this. Which ones do you think he's incapable of meeting? There's not one. I mean, come on. He's over it all. There's not a need you have in your life that Jesus can't meet. You just got to find him. You got to see him. You got to accept him. You got to let him be Lord of your life. And he'll meet all of your needs. He is, as Barclay called him, the all sufficient Christ. And Barclay was limited there because the English language is limited. Paul could have just said he's over everything, but Paul wants you to know it's not just everything, it's everything. It's everything you can see, everything you can't see. It's over the past, it's over the future. He's over it all. And He has secured for us our eternity by being firstborn from the dead. We have a hope, we have a confidence. If we had time to read the next section, all of this flows into Paul saying, so here's what He's done for you. He has given you peace with God. He has reconciled you to God. He has forgiven your sins. Now you're still doing a bunch of them and you need to quit. And he's going to help you do that. He's going to sanctify you. Some of it, just as you get to see him and you get in love with him, you're going to just start to see with distaste and disfavor the other part. But some of it's like donuts. It's addictive. And you just try as you might. You can't shake it because you come in every Sunday and they're right there. You think, Lord, 
Lord, what are you doing to me? And you think about coming in one of those other doors, but you can smell them. And that's the way sin can be. So some of it, you're going to wind up getting a bellyache from him. And it's going to be his way of saying, hey, you went a little too far. Hey, get that out of your life. Or he's going to have you meet someone that's going to make you say, hey, you know, if, if I was talking to a bunch of young kids, I'd say one day you're going to meet someone and your heart's going to go boom, 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 like a big bass drum. And you're going to want that person. I'm just telling you this, Blake, stand up. He's single. No. And that person you're going to want, you're going to want to be the right kind of person for. And so God will use these different things to help shape and mold you and sanctify you. But write it down, take it to him and know that Jesus is the answer. And then watch him multiply in your life as he meets your needs and you meet others because that's what happens. May I bless you in the name of Jesus and we'll see you next week. Father, thank you so much for all sufficiency in Jesus. Lord, the vision we have of you is amazing. Bless everyone who hears this message and inspire us to follow you. Through Jesus, our Lord, your image, amen. See you guys next Sunday.
Thank you.